Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com and find them at FDIC at booth 2540. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. TheFireStore.com, equipping protectors with passion. That's how they operate, and it's how they live. They understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Their goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford. Visit them at FDIC at Boots 110 and 111. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio. In this episode of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, the podcast that is dedicated to the great volunteer fire service and also getting all our listeners to embrace the message that developing, displaying, and maintaining a professional image and reputation are the duty and responsibility of all firefighters, and recognizing that true professionalism is not defined by any paycheck. Tom Merrill here, glad to have you listening in this to this latest episode. Actually, it's the second one I've done this week, as I did a podcast live from the FDIC floor back on Friday. I had a great discussion with several members from my home department, the Snyder Fire Department, and they were sharing their FDIC experiences from the classes they took, the products and equipment they were looking at, and other FDIC takeaways. And we also had a really nice discussion about Bobby. Of course, I'm talking about Chief Bobby Halton. We shared our memories of him and what it meant to each and every one of us about what he meant to each and every one of us at my department, Snyder. He was there back in 2016 to be the Master of Ceremonies and keynote speaker at our 100th anniversary, so we got to know him so well. And um, that episode is on my YouTube channel, and I will get it up on my website, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, soon enough as well. And it's also available through the FDIC homepage as well if you want to check that uh, podcast out live from the FDIC floor. And speaking of FDIC, another FDIC is in the books now, and it was definitely another just fantastic experience. Tempered a bit, of course, because our dear friend Bobby Halton was not with us. Uh, surreal not to see him out and about and in the hallways giving out his hugs and greetings. You know, it's always one of the staples of the great FDIC experience was seeing him and talking to him and just enjoying his presence. But um, it was still a great conference. It was great, uh, a great success for me personally, as well as for the event in general. I'm told it reached record levels. Um, Pre-COVID levels are back. The pre-COVID numbers, I'm being told, which is 
freaking awesome. And I took pages upon pages of notes in the classes I was in. I think I made about eight classes this year, and every single one of them was a fantastic class led by just awesome instructors. And I always take a lot of notes. And uh, um, I hashtagged some uh, posts on my professional volunteer Facebook page. Uh, Never stop learning because, as I always say, professionals never stop learning. Every conference I go to, if I'm not presenting, I can usually be found sitting in another presenter's class. And as usual, for FDIC, there were too many great classes led by too many great instructors to choose from, and I often had trouble figuring out what class I was going to go to, and I had several at once (laughs) that I wanted to go to. So that's always a challenge, but that's certainly a good challenge, and anyone that's been to FDIC knows how true that is. And on top of the classes, there was the networking which, again, listeners to this podcast know, I always like to mention, it's one of the highlights of FDIC and all the FIRE Conference, right? The opportunity to get together with industry peers and talk shop. The opportunity to also meet, uh, if you're some of the first-time attendees, maybe you can meet some of the fire service legends and icons that you look up to because they're always there and willing to talk um, with anybody that wants to talk to them. There's no egos. They have no hidden agendas. They just want to celebrate learning and cherish this great brotherhood and sisterhood. And that's another great part of any conference. And if you've never been, it doesn't have to be FDIC, any of the conferences, folks, get out and enjoy these conferences. Um, another thing I was able to do for the first time this year, I was able to attend the author's dinner, which is hosted by fire engineering books and videos and clarion events. I was a little nervous going to that, My book's not out yet. It's definitely coming out this year. So I was invited. I was encouraged to go, and I'm really glad I did. It was a great affair, and all the great fire engineering authors were there. Um, I just was like a fly on the wall, just taking it all in and listening to what people were talking about, and I really enjoyed myself. And my book, hopefully, is going to definitely be out this year. It's definitely going to be coming out this year. Um, Didn't make it for the FDIC conference this year, but we're in the final editing stages now. I talked to the uh, uh, Penwell people, the uh, fire engineering book people at the conference, and it's definitely moving forward. And uh, we're targeting this year for the release. And, of course, I will let you all know uh, when that comes to fruition. And, of course, at FDIC this year, there were some very moving tributes to our dear friend Bobby, Chief Bobby Halton. Uh, There was a nice touching memorial service on Wednesday that I was actually able to participate in um, and offer, along with other fire service leaders, offer a brief memory of Bobby and express all of our condolences to his family who were there, his wife, Marcia, his sons, Ryan, Dean, and Evan. They were all there, along with some other family members, and we had an opportunity to talk with them after the uh, memorial service and thank them for sharing Bobby with us all these years. And they were so gracious and so humbled. And they were also so appreciative for all the support everyone in the fire service has provided to them since Bobby's passing back in December. So uh, that was very nice. And Chief David Rhodes, I mean, he took the baton from Bobby and just kept on running forward. His opening day speech set the tone and as he said, he's, you know, he's not going to step into Bobby's shoes. He's going to forge ahead in his own shoes, but remain committed to continuing to make FDIC the greatest fire service conference in the world. And I think he showed that this past week. And it was so fitting, too, that the Lifetime Achievement Award was posthumously awarded to Chief Halton. And the whole week, in addition to moving forward with the Chief Rhodes and the others, was about also celebrating Bobby's legacy. 
Chief Rhodes was everywhere. He was out and about talking and mingling with people. I was with my chief one day, and he walked by us. I was able to introduce him to my chief of department. He was in the classes. He was out everywhere at the events. And it was just another great week, a week of learning, a week of networking, a, a week of researching new ideas, new equipment. And it truly is an exhausting week. But when you come back home as exhausted as you are, you do come back recharged and pardoned upon, fired up to get back at it and deliver the best service possible back home and become the best member possible in our hometown department. That's what FDIC does, folks. Kudos to Chief Rhodes and Diane Feldman Rothschild and all the other talented professionals who made it all happen again this year without Bobby continuing forward. And FDIC 2023 was it's in the books now, but what a great experience it again was. Now, let's get on to the show, and you know we've been focusing this year on training in the Volunteer Fire Department and the Volunteer Fire Department training drill. Every episode this year has been focusing on that, and I'm going to segue tonight into a particular area of work that I'm extremely passionate about, and so is our guest, (laughs) and that is engine work. And among the many classes I sat in in, at FDIC this year was an engine company operations class that was taught by a retired Cleveland firefighter and certainly a very well-known fire service instructor, Jeff Shoup. Now, Jeff began his fire service career back in 1974 with the Cleveland, Ohio Fire Department. He retired in 2011, so he enjoyed a, about a 37-year career there. He also served briefly as a division chief in the North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina Fire Department, and he's also been one of us a volunteer firefighter. So he has experience on all these different levels, big city, smaller city, and the volunteer sector. He's instructed all over the country. He's written numerous articles for many fire service publications. He's recognized for his work, among other things, focusing on engine company and fire ground operations. He's featured in the Elkhart Brass, Brass Tacks, and Hard Facts video series, which is dedicated to all things engine work hose and nozzles so he's definitely well versed in those areas and uh, as I said spent a lot of time on the podcast this year focusing on training and in my opinion and I know in Jeff's opinion one area that should get a lot of attention on the fire ground and training ground is good old-fashioned engine work quickly pulling and stretching lines and getting water on the fire as quickly as possible now we know There's no shortage of training topics that we need to drill on. There shouldn't be anyway, but at the top of the list should be engine company drills so we can get as proficient as possible. Matter of fact, I think it's safe to assume that parked in every single firehouse across America is a truck of some type that's designed to get water on the fire. Not every department's going to have a ladder or a tanker or a tender or a big rescue, but I dare say they all have a truck with hose and maybe some water, so it makes sense that one of our priorities, one of our areas of expertise, should be getting water on the fire. And it's easier said than done. We're going to talk with Jeff about some of the hiccups that might get experienced and some things he's seen over the years, but it will get easier with training. So let's talk engine work with the great Jeff Shoup. Welcome to the show, brother. (laughs) Oh, gosh, Tom, thank you. That's quite an introduction. I hope I can live up to it for you. So, well, I've uh, seen you talk, I've been in your classes, and I know you have so much great information to share with everybody, and you are so, so 
passionate about the engine side of yeah. things, right? Well, I am. I try to be, you know. And uh, again, I thank you for that. Yeah, it's a great introduction. So, uh, yeah, I like what you said about the, the volunteer sector, uh, the professionalism that goes with it. And in my background, yes, I've got uh, volunteer firefighting in my background also. And as for my team that, you know, we go out and train, that's strategic fire training. If you take a look at the, uh, the membership we have, I got a couple of guys who are volunteers, and you, you know them well. Uh, one is Jerry Knapp, and the other one is Tim Pillsworth. And mm-hmm. Blake brothers. Deaver, Good. who's not – yeah. And Blake Deaver, who's now running a fire training school up in uh, Western Tech that's in La Crosse, Wisconsin, who has been a volunteer – and uh, it's just great that we have that representation from big city, small, career, mm-hmm. volunteer. And we bring that chemistry together uh, so well because we all have the same belief. And that is, you know, professionalism is not whether you get a paycheck or not. Professionalism is how you conduct yourself, what you do to become a part of the culture, the traditions, and so so forth, to be that team that's going to go out and go take control of that fire or they'll go take control of that emergency or whatever the situation is that you're responding to. You do it together as a team and watch out for each other. Simple wow, stuff. Fantastic. You know? Like-minded firefighters yeah. buying into yeah, the term exactly. professional. No, yeah. doesn't matter if you're in a paycheck yeah. or not, right? It's how you approach the job, train, and dedicate yourself to the craft. I've, I've so had that privilege, I tell, I tell people, if you don't mind me here, uh, no, I've had ahead. that privilege of you know, being in a big city firefighter as a career firefighter. And I've lived out here in the countryside, you know, my wife and I, for 37 years. So, you know, I've, I've been able to go to the fires that I do in the city or did in the city when I was on a job. Uh, but coming home here... I get to see firefighting from that perspective. For example, I, I tell people, I say, yeah, one afternoon I was home from the firehouse. The call comes in, and I respond in my car. And I got two little old ladies standing out front. Their house is on fire. Their faces are blackened. They're sooty and sweaty because they just got out of that. And I'm taking care of the situation by myself. You know, I had to go in and shake the house down as best I could in that situation and so forth. So, you know, it's not like you're having that that great thing of having a fire truck and a whole bunch of firemen come together at one time. So you got right. to be right. ready for that unexpected thing. And another time, again, out here in the country, tones go off and I, I go past the firehouse. So the, the plan was if you're – living and you're passing the firehouse and stop at the firehouse, make sure the trucks are responding or the trucks are out. Well, in this case, I had to pick the engine up by myself and go down the country road thinking, well, what am I going to do when I get there? <laughs> we'll see what right. happens. So, <laughs> Who's going to be there when I get there? Is anybody going to be there when yeah. I get there, right? Yeah. And um, that one time I was telling you with, with the, uh, the little old ladies, you know, I, I went in, I shook the house down, I came back out, you know, and, and I hear a siren coming. And I'm like, oh, thank goodness, you know, got help coming here quickly. Turns out to be a cop car. 
<laughs> I was going to say an ambulance, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. But, very yeah. real, though, yeah, very are. real, right? 25,000 out of the yeah. 30,000 departments in the United States are volunteer or all are nearly uh, volunteer 100%, but uh, 25 of the 30,000 are all volunteer or mostly volunteer. So that's a very real situation in many, many areas. And um I wanted to, before we got into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about tonight for the benefit of our listeners, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just give a little background on yourself. What brought you into the fire service? Are you a first generation, second generation? How would you get in, and are you born and raised in Cleveland? What led to the path that you've no. enjoyed? Okay. Uh, actually, I was born and raised in Canton, Ohio, Football Hall of Fame city. Okay. And uh, it was a Cub Scouts. I'll tell you that. How? So I was eight years old. This was 1960. Canton, Ohio, had just opened up their new central fire station. Canton had a big fire department. Uh, They had ten engines, three ladders, two trucks running out of the same firehouse. Okay, picture that. One was a straight uh, chassis, Peter Persh, and the other one was a tractor-trailer Seagrave. We were going on a a Cub Scout tour there in 1960, so I was eight years old. And the firefighter showing us around and so forth, and he went up there in the tiller seat, and I just, I don't know. It was just like uh, I thought, I have to drive one of those when I get older. I want to be a fireman. It did. And then as I, where I grew up in Canton, there was two firehouses. One was a full-time firehouse. One was a volunteer firehouse. Canton City, number five. Canton Township, number three. And where I lived, Canton Township would respond that way. Canton City would respond the other way. And so any time <laughs> I heard a siren, I would run down to the corner of the street because I think we were the fourth house up from that street, and I watched the firemen go by. So it was you know, one of those things that, you know, the excitement and so forth, and, uh, you know, it just stayed with me. And I went through high school, got into sports and things like that. And when I got out of high school, you know, I had nothing going for me. You know, I ended up, you know, in the service, and that was 1970. And coming home, I had a great person who was a Canton fireman tell me, you know, what are you going to do? I says, well, I don't know. Uh, I'm under tw- I was under 20 because, you know, I – you could get out, you know, whatever. And uh, I don't know, I was 20. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So he says, why don't you take the test for the fire department? And I did. And I lucked out and uh, got appointed. And that was it. I started taking tests all over like a lot of guys will. And so that got me going. And, you know, one thing led to another. Got into the idea of training and the belief in education and the fire service and so forth. Got to meet, I can't tell you how many people I've come across with the same attitudes, you know. They love the job. They love what it happened. And also being from career and volunteer. And that was the one thing about Canton area. Canton was the career department. All the other departments except for Maslin and Alliance, which were also full-time, but the rest of them were all volunteers. So you had that blend of fire departments, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah, great exposure. And- and you started a 37-year career in Cleveland? Yeah, well, <laughs> someone's got to do it. You know. 
think you saw a few fires? <laughs> it was, it was yeah, as I don't think a lot of people knew what was going on then. Aaron Fields, when I met Aaron out in California back in, Jesus God, 2002 or three or something like that. And, you know, I had him in class as a student. You know, we were doing the hands-on. You know, we're out there, I think it was Rose, Roseville outside of Sacramento. And he looked into Cleveland and he said, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't realize Cleveland was like that, you know. And it was. We had the Warriors in Cleveland, too. You know, it's not just one city or one area of a city that had uh, their Warriors going, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. yeah, we – yeah, it was uh well, take it take a look at it this way. Yeah, Cleveland's population at one time was just under a million. It's down to three hundred and seventy thousand now. Wow. So with the decay and destruction and everything, sure. Yeah, that's that's what happens, you know, a lot of yeah. a lot of open open territory. <laughs> right and the firefighters the are there to take the brunt of it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other thing, you know, as time goes on and you lose your tax base and so forth well, the money to support your services, your public safety, your other uh, community services and things like that, it goes down too. So there's always layoffs and things like that. So uh, you saw the fire department go, like when I went on the job, they had 36 engines and 18 trucks, and they're down, I think, to 23 engines right now and 11, 11 trucks, maybe 12 trucks. Wow. So, yeah. You know, I bet that's a similar story in a lot of urban areas. That. Yes, exactly. That, that's a very typical. Youngstown's another city that's seen that. And, uh, you know, that's what happens, you know, sadly. Yeah, even my own city of yeah. Buffalo, same same type of, not as high as a million, but 500-plus thousand back in the day, down to under, uh, under 300,000 now, I believe, and the fire department's been yeah. gutted over the years as well. So a very, very similar right. story, but it allowed you to get some incredible experience. So I... I sat in on your class at FDIC last week, the engine company firefighting in contemporary times. I took yes. pages of notes. I think I counted today six pages of notes. Um, but what, I, what I'm impressed with is how you have the ability to break down engine company work into such basic principles, to take what some people can make so complicated or so confusing when it comes to engine company or work or what others maybe try to make complicated and confusing anyway. And you keep it so simple. So that's why I thought it would be great to talk on the show today, um, bring you on the show, pick your brain a bit, and talk about setting up a volunteer fire department for success on the fire ground. Again, like I said, I think pretty much every fire department in the country and across the world has a you know a truck with water and hose. <laughs> So we've got to make sure we're doing that right before we get into some other crazy things. So, you know, I thought we could talk about, you know, getting better as an engine company from packing hose to stretching hose and stretching the right size hose and getting water on the fire to uh, kill the fire. As I heard you say several times in class last week, kill the fire. So how does that sound? That's our mentality. Scratch. Where do we start if we want to? walk into a volunteer firehouse that's looking to start from scratch, hit the reset button. I'm the new chief in town or I'm the new training officer. We need a new culture here to be more efficient at stretching lines. Uh, can you can you maybe walk the listener through some ideas on where to get started? 
Uh, well, we'll try. Uh, you did touch on a couple of things there, culture and traditions. And I think one of the interesting things that anybody going into a department has to look at, especially if you're going into, okay, we're going to try to make changes. You've got to work against the culture that's there. And also the traditions. Look, good, bad, or otherwise, traditions are what power the fire service. You know, we've got good traditions, we've got bad traditions, we've got traditions that whatever, okay? <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, you've got to instill a mentality that you have to keep firefighting simple. Example, when you're a volunteer firefighter and the tones go off at 3 in the morning, and I, I got to experience this myself, coming from a big city where you have – 12 engines being purchased at the same time, you know, to complement the other engine companies that are there. <laughs> Why you generally have an idea the way they're built together because of standardized operations. So at 3 o'clock in the morning when you jump out of bed and run down to the firehouse and you jump into a GMC, a MAC, an FMC, a Seagrave, or an American La France, it's like, oh, God, where is the battery switch? Number two, mm-hmm. where's the ignition switch? You, you know? That's a, that's a hard thing. And then, of course, how do I get this thing in pumps when I get there, if that's what I have to do? So keep firefighting simple. And that's a mentality that we have to uh, give to everybody, you know. The other thing is when it comes to the firefighting, the fire is going to make it complex enough for you. So with all this in mind, standardization is a big thing. It's To me, it's a key thing for smooth operations. So let's say your fire department is one that has three fire stations. you got an engine in each fire station. You've got maybe a ladder at this one, a rescue at this one, maybe a ladder at the other one too, you know, just for, you know, number's sake. But the guy's in the engine. If the first engine on the scene is pumping and the chief officer says, hey, I need another line, take it above to the second floor and take care of that area right there. Those guys from that other firehouse you want them to be able to go to that engine that's pumping from that other firehouse that's first due and working to be able to go and smoothly stretch a hose, get it in position, call for water, and go to work. But if you have all kinds of fancy hose loads or you've got a different kind of nozzle or this or that or the other thing, it might come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. So, does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, it made me think, too, about I was talking to a firefighter at a conference, and he was talking about um, in their area they get a feed from an engine. And um, for years and years and years, everyone was trained to um, the, the, the feeder engine would do a forward lay and uh, go to, down to the hydrant and um, or do a reverse lay. They'd go down to the hydrant, and they would hook up the, the large diameter hose on the passenger side of the attack engine and the directive changed a few years ago that uh, do whatever side you want. And it sounds so simple, but what happened at fires is you had one officer saying do it one way, and then another officer would come around the corner and say, why are you doing it that way? We always do it on the other side. And it led to what I started calling in my presentation a dysfunctional moment in the volunteer fire service. When you can keep things simple and have standard procedures, understanding you might have to change them for what I always say, a compelling reason, but for 90% of your bread and butter operations, here's how we're going to do things, here's the lines we're pulling, 
here's how we're packing hose, here's how we're deploying hose. You avoid those dysfunctional moments, such as you just mentioned. Different nozzles, right. different packing, right? That leads to dysfunction, and now you're already starting off behind the eight ball as the fire's growing exponentially. People are tripping over themselves for a lack of a better way of looking at it, and people are thinking you differently. Just, you need everyone thinking the same way. Absolutely. And see, that's another thing you brought up, which is a very good point. So you have an officer who's not seeing it the way that he's known it for the last, let's say, 15 years. And he sees now the uh, directive has been uh, slackened, slackened. So, yeah, you can pump, uh, pump from either side or have your intake hooked up from either side. You're getting water into the pump. What, you, what you'd like to see that guy do is just stand back and watch how it falls into place. Okay. Right. And, right. And it's just that it's just one of those simple things. So uh, I, I think sometimes know, people feel they have to give orders. <laughs> you know. Oh, absolutely. I feel like sometimes oh, you know they, I'm the officer. I've got to say something. And I remember Rick Lasky. I think he just said it on the podcast at FDIC last week. But I've heard him say it before. Chief Lasky tells a story about he knew he it was either him or another chief. They knew they were becoming a a good fire chief when they had a fire. And every time they went to say something, it was already being done. So it was like, uh, 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 uh. he didn't have to say anything because everyone knew <laughs> yeah. what had to be done. That's your goal, right? Right. We don't need to right. micromanage. And, you know, you have these people on the radio every second directing every single thing. Do we have to tell our members to pull an inch of three-quarter line for a, a car fire? They should know that, right? But you have well, people that well, have see, to spoon feed everything. See, that, that's something that comes from training and officers that meet on a regular basis and and by a regular basis you know your chief officer your deputy chief your assistant chiefs or whoever and along with your company officers go over this stuff okay and that way when that firehouse is operating on a car fire rubbish fire whatever you know that officer can stand back you know get out of the cab and watch his people i always said the company level officer especially on an engine is the troubleshooter. Look, watch your guys. If you have your guys trained to what you want them to do, then just stand back and watch them. The only time you should really step in is when there's a real problem, and that's it. Otherwise, if they've got the line stretched, if they've got everything falling into place and we got good water going and we're ready to attack the fire, you've done a good thing there with your people that if they're ready to do that quickly and efficiently. So you mm-hmm. don't have to say much, right? So yeah, right. Uh, Sometimes less yeah. is better. Oh yeah. gosh, yeah. You said you in know? the class. And, um, well, go ahead. No, uh, no, I just forgot it. Okay, go on. Uh, go on. <laughs> one one of the things you mentioned in class um, in in planning things out is remember fire. I think I got this right. You said something like firefighting's geographical, and it's it's yes. local. Did, what what did you mean by that? And well, let me start off the top. Number one. Firefighting is circumstantial. That's number one, okay? I was talking about it, I I think you remember, that here you have an expert, an SME, coming into your department, and he's from southwestern United States. Let's say I'm not picking on anybody from southwestern United States. I'm just saying they're coming from a different part of the country. They don't have the same weather conditions that you do. They may be coming from a department that's totally different from the kind of department and your community. 
And so when I when I hear this, I always think, and that's why I, I don't like when people start picking apart another department for what they do. I think we he need to look at those uh, situations and say, hmm, you know, what are their circumstances? How many people do they have on the engine? What's their local water supply? Are they an organized fire department or not? You know, you, you just kind of look at that and say, what are the circumstances here? You have, like in our part of the country back east, tremendous numbers. Look, look, at, look at the wood frame construction at the uh, balloon frame. Look at the number of apartments over stores that we have right up to the street. Look at the older communities with the older water systems and things like that. So, you know, when you see a fire, you know, and look, I've been on fires in my time. My God, you know, the fire was from the basement all the way up into the cock loft of that, you know, mixed multiple or, or uh, uh, you know, whatever, three-story apartment, and you're playing catch-up on this thing. So to have somebody say, oh, see what they did here, see what they did here, firefighting is circumstantial, number one. Number two, it's geographical. All right, like I said, compare a guy in the southwestern United States who hardly sees snow except in pictures, and up where you're at, Tom, or you guys will see six feet of snow dropping at one time, and it's like they're in a total different world. And right. so this is what happens. The other thing is the location of your city can have an impact on the type of building construction you have. So you go to the northern states where have heavier snow loads and things like that, well, then their roofs are expected to support heavier snow loads and things like that. So these are the things that change the way that firefighting may happen from one city or one area of the country to another. Third thing is local, and I already mentioned that, okay? Again, if it's a volunteer fire department, well, how many guys are going to be able to grab the engine? I grabbed an engine by myself at one time. (laughs) You know, (laughs) staffing on that engine was one. So... So that's the thing versus others where, you know, you see some of the old days and hear some of the old stories where the, the, the volunteer engine turned out with six people on it. And, you know, you had plenty of people to do the job. But the other thing is how well organized were they when they got there? Right. So right. it comes down to those three things. So. And, be, and being organized gets back to what we talked about earlier. You know, take a step back, see see what's being done, not just in your department, but your area, to get familiar with everyone's Mm -hmm. layout and setup and maybe try and make it as similar as possible to help when that fire comes. Because you're all going to be together anyway. No one's not working with any auto aid today or mutual aid today. So try and set up similar um, packages so people are familiar. But Start with your own department, right? I mean, if we're not training our own people, before we even worry about the mutual aid and the auto aid, you know, start with your own department and making sure that there's continuity there. I've never been a big fan of, well, this engine's packed this way with this nozzle and this engine's packed this way with the other type of nozzle because it just leads to confusion, I think. So unless there's a really good reason to do it that way, keep it simple. There's a safety factor there, too. I'll give you an example. Okay, so let's say the first engine's in the scene, and they got a fire in a, a large two-and-a-half-story frame. It's a two-and-a-half, very typical, like I say, large, where you might have a couple of kids' bedrooms or even a small apartment on the, on, on the uh, attic or in the attic, top floor, we'll call it, okay? 
You've seen those. And Mm -hmm. you get in the scene, and you're told to take a line up to the attic or third floor, whatever you want to call it. I don't know how your department would would identify it, but nevertheless, we're going to the three-story, two-and-a-half-story frame. Does that make sense, Bill, with that big (laughs) attic space up there? I heard that one night in the radio. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What do you say? (laughs) So anyways, you get up there, and they're pumping into a line on the first floor and the second floor with low-pressure nozzles and equipment. You're up there, and you have an old nozzle that's a 100 PSI high-pressure nozzle. And maybe you have an extra length of hose or two put into your attack hose line. And you open up your nozzle, and the stream you get, it's like, oh, gosh. And I hope we don't run into the jackpot up here. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And this is the thing about standardizing your fire attack packages. So you got to go with low pressure. You got to put put it out there for all of your attack lines. Yeah, you, know, you got to understand that because the engine develops one discharge pressure, and it's a hard thing to train pump operators. And I don't care if you're volunteer or career. It's a hard thing to train pump operators to understand that you know we got three lines on a low pressure system going to three levels in this building, and now what's the length of the hose lines? and see where we're going with this. So mm. you, as an officer on that third line going upstairs, you better make sure you got a good fire stream before you head up there and get yourself in the jackpot. Right. Just for right. the what if. I think, yeah. Yeah. You know, you use that word several times about standardizing, and I think sometimes people overthink the, and do the what if, what if, what if way too much. Let's be standardized. Mm-hmm. For the bread and butter, 99% of the incidents we're going to get, and it'll make things go so much smoother. Even packing hose. I've seen people make hose packing become almost an art. Where I've seen people have to consult a book on where things are, how things are folded, or to, you know. I don't care. I'm not going to advocate either. You know, any of the many packs that are out there. My department, 20 plus years ago, we adopted a simple flat load with a nice loop at 50 feet for the cross lay. We do a nice horseshoe on the two and a half that comes off the back so you have a nice working length. And it's simple. It's easy to remember. Yes, we go to FDIC and other conferences. Yes, we know there's other ways of packing it. We're thinking of the average volunteer in our department for the average couple of fires we get a year. Everyone remembers how to pack it and how to deploy it. And no officers coming back and changing it for the sake of changing it, now leading to another potential dysfunctional moment on the fire mm-hmm. scene. Right. Did, did, did so, you find any particular – go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go on. I'm sorry. I was going to ask if you, if you what you think of hose packing, right? There's so many different ways out there. I don't know if Cleveland had a certain way, your volley outfit or your experience – what what you found worked good for for the for the you know for the inch and three quarter line let's say I know two and a half you can get because yeah. it's a big bulky we do the horseshoe for the two and a half on the working length but do you you know there's the obviously Minuteman and I've seen Detroit bundles and I've seen and we just did the flat load and it's worked great for us for many years dated back to before I was chief of department in the 2012 uh, 2007 to 2012 when I was chief I just kept it going I'm like why make it confusing. 
Exactly. You know, you again, it's one of those things. Keep the job simple. Keep your hose load simple because if you can keep your hose load simple and you can teach your people and train your people, then the hose comes off smoothly. Uh, flat loads is what I've always worked with. And it, it kind of scares people. As, as, and Apple will tell you, you know, Jerry, Jerry loves talking this way. You know, it scares people. The simplicity. We have a flat load. The last 50 foot is coiled on with the nozzle. So when it comes time to arrive at the fire, you've got a working fire, and we're going to be pulling this line. Person, whoever's going to take the nozzle, takes the nozzle in one hand, the loops of hose in the other arm, and starts walking towards the fire. Second person on the stretch, second coupling. And people look like, well, he can handle that, the nozzle, the person on the nozzle. No, 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 no. If the second person grabs a second coupling, that means you've got the third length coming out of the bed, and we're taking it in a straight line. So when the nozzle person on the nozzle gets to what we call the drop point, and that's the area right before the fire where we're going to play the line out, flake it out, call for water, bleed it off. The officer is going to come up there, or the person in charge is going to come up there. We're all going to look around real quick together, see what our, our, our situation is, and then we're going to go on air together. And the hose is played out in a straight line. One of the things that I think uh, some people some people think if you throw a whole bunch of hose out in the street by the engine, that's getting a, getting the job done. And we're going to get this line in service. In a lot of cases, you got to shove a pile of spaghetti, and it's going to create a mess. So, mm-hmm. like I said, what we talk about, you know, is that 50 foot going with the nozzle, second person, second coupling. And then if you got a third person, like a, dr- a driver or the engineer, he can He'll finish. finish playing it out, break it if uh, you're operating from a static bed. And if you're not, if you're operating from a pre-connected bed, all that person's got to do is clear the last length out of the bed, and you're ready for water. And that's also and that's not only is that, and not only is it simple. What a great drill topic. How fun. If your department has a couple pumpers, two, three pumpers, or bring in neighboring companies, you could make a game out of it and have fun stretching lines and you know, oh, yeah. practice knocking a cone over, see who has the better time. Um, and then you, it, you also practice repacking it so everyone gets familiar with repacking it. And, you know, we, they say one of the key aspects of training is make it fun. Well, there's a fun drill, right? It's a practical drill, and it's a fun drill. I tell you what you can do and to make it interesting. And one of the things we do when we go out and we work with the department, we'll go through getting everybody with the different size hose lines in their hands operating as a novel firefighter and a backup firefighter. And then we go into things like a RAM appliance, rapid attack monitor, okay? Then we go and mm-hmm. break down into group work. And after that, we'll do scenarios. And so this is something you can do on a drill night. Like you say, bring a couple of your companies together, and if you just got groups of firefighters, you go over things. And that's the other thing about, you know, the, the training. You've got to give uh, firefighters your expectations. If you're the chief of the department, you know, you say, look, guys, here, we're trying to get this culture. We're trying to get this mentality. We want you to operate as a team. You want, we want to make the firefighting as simple as possible. So here's what we need to do. Then we go out and we walk through things. Then we work our way through with a little bit more speed. 
And it's not something you do in January and then the next time you do it is a year and a half later. No, you have to do it regularly. So what we'll, we'll do, uh, going back to what I was talking about, is that at the end of the day, we go into the scenario work and we keep it to three people because that's what many fire departments see responding on an engine. I hope I'm right there. So we have them do a forward lay. We tell them we got this building rolling to be held. Three people. And they're going to do a forward lay, and they're going to put a deck gun in operation. Operate right off the tank, okay? No sense in keeping that water in the tank when you got a building that well involved and maybe extending to an occupied building, whatever the case is, but let's get water going now. And all that time, that firefighter at the hydrant's hooking up that line while the forward lay is going forward, the deck gun's operating off the tank, and now the pump operator breaks that supply line, hooks it into his intake, makes the call for water. And that's one of the contests you can put out there because what you're doing is telling your guys, get this done before we exhaust all the water in the tank and see if they right. can do it. Right. And you see, and, and we see it time at a time. <laughs> that pump operator is hustling. And it works pretty good. Then we have our water supply established. We can continue the deck gun operation. That hydrant firefighter comes up, and we'll say the guy on top of the deck gun is a company officer. Where he should be up there because you've got view and visibility of the incident, watching where the fire is going and stuff like that. And now we have a two-and-a-half being stretched by the pump operator and the hydrant firefighter. You see, we worked on basics to show them how to do that. It's a low-pressure system that you want to work with. Once that's in operation, we'll say, okay, there comes our second engine and three people coming up. And we'll say, we need a two-and-a-half, and we need it with a ram. And we'll have them stretch over there and get their ram in operation. And so what we'll do is several other things. We've employed up to seven or eight engine crews at a scenario. And it, it's a lot of fun, and it opens a lot of eyes because the one of the things that we will always push, no freelancing, engines are supposed to operate as teams. Your job on an engine is to get water in the fire, whether you're first due, second due, third due, or 12th, I don't care. Engine's right. job right. is to get water on the fire. And you can only do that efficiently by operating as a team. And, and you know what else you're doing? Very well. Huh. You, you know what else you're doing there? You're building teamwork. You're establishing that culture. So you want to start changing the culture yes. in your department. Start doing those types of training drills. You're establishing yes. now that culture in addition to yeah. building teamwork and making your department a little more efficient. The guys laughed at me for something I said. We were out in uh, Colorado, uh, oh, gosh, was it a year ago, I think, or something like that. And we had done the whole day out there at this conference. And I told people at the end, and the guys, they were they were shooting at me. I said, you know what, take a lot to be good. And they started <laughs> laughing at me. I said, well, what are, you, what are you guys laughing at? No, it's the way you said it. I said, no, with a little effort. And a little mindset, you can be as good as you want or not. But if yeah. you channel that, you know, 
you can put together a great firefighting team. And you can put together a great fire scene, too. Just simple stuff like that. Company yeah. concept. Yeah. Communication. Yeah, accountability. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. I, it reminded me, you know, I so a story I like to tell, and I, I don't want it to come out the wrong way, but it's a proud story. Back when I was chief in my department, we just had a, a an attic fire where everything went right, and um, it, it so happened that the attic fire was around the corner from my house, and we were having a little, it, gosh, I think it might have been around Labor Day because we were having um, a family function at my house. We had family over, and they all ran to watch the fire because it was right around the corner. And my brother-in-law happens to be a firefighter in a neighboring company a town away. So he's really interested in watching the fire. And everything went well. Line got stretched. Water supply established. Worked off the tank water while that was going on. Boom, 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 boom. Fire was contained to the attic. And later that night when we're back at my house, my brother-in-law looked at me and said, I was watching you and I didn't see you get on the radio that often and tell people what to do or how'd they, how'd they know where the park he even said. And it made me aware that we trained on that. Maybe his department didn't as much as we did, but we trained on that over and over again. And it's like I said earlier with Chief Lasky saying he tried to give orders and just kept saying, uh, 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 uh. He, the people knew what yeah. to do. And like you said, you do that and you establish that culture. And it before you know it, you don't even realize how good you are. They're just doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great feeling, isn't it? Oh, and other gosh. People it sure are is. buying into this system that you and your officers have put out there. Yeah. And like I said, yeah, we you're increasing your accountability, and that's uh, your safety. That's your efficiency all coming together. Right. It, it, and you got to work at it. It's not like you can drill once a month or go attend two training drills a year for that to happen. No, it takes work. But part of being a professional, you're gonna put the work in to do it. And um, you know, I wanted to, how how does no, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay, how does this sound? So let's just say once a week. You know, you have your meetings once a week or once every two weeks. I don't know. But, yeah, when I was a volley, the uh, the local department, you know, it was every Wednesday night. Okay. That's our training and night again, been since 1952, every Wednesday night. So you're pulling people in at 630 at night. Many of them have worked their jobs somewhere else. They come home. They, yep. you know, get their T-shirts or shirts on. They come down to the firehouse. I always believed Look, make it simple, put the tools in their hands, and have a 100, 150 feet of hose laid out there. Everybody goes through operating the nozzle before we start the meeting. It's just that simple. They get the feel of it. They get the feel of operating the bale. If you're wanting a fog stream or solid bore, they get to see the characteristics of each one of those. And, you know, next meeting, have them come in, blow the line, Set up a 24-foot ladder. Well, you can do it inside. I don't care where you do it, but climb up the ladder, climb down, boom. Okay. Once we get everybody through, that's what we're, then we go into the meeting. Familiarity with your equipment. And core competencies. 
competency and the yeah. core areas that you as a firefighter should be expected to be able to do. Yeah. 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 That's a great it's, idea. Like I say, simple stuff like that. You know? I imagine some people yeah. will give pushback to that. What? It's meeting night. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Well, but are you a, are you a firefighter? No, you're, you're or are you... <laughs> yeah, right. Well, right. Yes, you are doing that. <laughs> so let me let me ask you. Here's another dysfunctional moment sometimes that I that I've seen, um, and sometimes it's because firefighters will pull up and they might be confronted with a good good working fire, and it's almost like moths to the fire, but they don't think again of some of the basics, and they don't put water on the fire until they get the hydrant water established, they don't, or, you know, a portable pond established, they don't think about their booster tank. You can knock down a lot of fire, even with a 500-gallon booster tank. And you were mentioned earlier about the scenarios you were laying out, right? Start with your tank water. That can knock out a lot of fire and make a dent in the fire, right? I bet you saw that all the time in Cleveland. Yeah, we had a thing where where we had, uh, you know, of course, with a big fleet of engines, you get to see how different engines can be functional. In other words, where I'm going with this, we had some engines that had 500-gallon water tanks, some had 750-gallon water tanks. And these were during our busy times, and you could see how those 750-gallon tanks, man, they allowed you to get a good punch at a well-involved fire, you know? And you practically never heard, unless the hydrants were all out of service in that, that, you know, situation, but other than that, yeah, you could start off with a, a deck gun. You could get a, a, a hand line pulled, and then you get your supply line hooked into it and still had, you know, that water. You had that ability to continue water without running out. So then they bought a whole bunch of other engines, you know, with 500-gallon tanks. And I was like, oh, God, you know, but that's, <laughs> you know, beyond my pay grade, you know, those decisions. Right, right. But that's the but thing. don't be afraid you know? to use so, it, right? Don't be afraid to use that water. Okay, yeah. And so I taught ICS and pick and sir back in the state of Ohio. I was one of the outreach instructors. Uh, pick and sir and ICS, those were the three original com- incident command courses that came from the National Fire Academy, went out to the states, so I was also doing, you know, uh, part-time work with our state fire academy. So back in 1990, we got, I think it was 89 or 90, we got that stuff going out here throughout the state. I ran into people who, just what you said, Tom, no, we don't want to do anything until we get a supply established. That's crazy. Somebody, If that was your house burning away, wouldn't you want that engine to arrive and those firefighters to stretch a line and start getting water on it? But right. you're waiting for one of those things. And I asked this one person one time, oh, you know, I don't need to divulge where it was from or anybody like that, you know. But, you know, it's like, where did you pick this up at? Well, this one guy came in and says, no one should ever be uh, going near a fire without having a backup water supply. Well, why? What's their justification? And tell me that person's experience, why they told you that. And it just like it made no sense at all. So yeah, you got five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred fifty. I don't care what the volume is on a tank when you arrive. Get that water in the fire, especially right. on a fast-moving mm-hmm. fire. Yeah, it shouldn't and even be up again, to debate. But the, 
Right. And and here again is a training moment where, you know, you work together, the pump operator to monitors, monitors the tank level, and if he's starting to see that he doesn't have a feed yet and he's getting a half a tank, a quarter of a tank, hey, that's why we all mm-hmm. have radios. Stay in touch. But there's a lot of times that crew's going to get in there and they're going to knock that fire down and get a good knock on it. With the whether it's 500 gallons or 750, if they know what they're doing, right. they know how to operate correctly, right? What are some of the tricks of the trade there about, let's say we're still on tank water, we're going down that dark, smoky hallway, are there things we can do? Not that you want to necessarily always be conserving water because safety is important, but are there tricks of the trade there that's going to maximize the time that you have before that water, extra water supply is established? It's going to maximize the 500 or 750 gallons. I know you don't want to pencil it. That was, uh, we'll get into no, that in a no, minute. No, definitely but, not. Uh, <laughs> no, but I will tell you what this. What would you tell that So crew? let's just say, uh, let's say you open the door and you got black smoke that's starting to bank down close to the floor. Okay occupied structure, whether it's a one-story, two-story, I don't care, whatever way you want to make it. But, again, this is that thing about we got our working length to the door outside. Lake it out, make the call for water. Got the person on the nozzle. You got the company, engine company officer there. And if you got a third firefighter there, that person can be back straightening out the line behind the attack team. The The term team means person on the nozzle and the person directly behind the nozzle man, which is probably going to be the company officer. And this third person, before that nozzle starts moving in, like I said, you got black smoke, and let's just say you had an orange glow towards the bottom of the floor in the back, down the hallway. So you know you got a room going pretty good there, and it's right here in the door. First thing you do is bleed that nozzle off to make sure you got good water and listen to that engine. Because if the engine's just idling away, well, then you might not have the good volume of water, okay? Especially when it's not on a hydrant because it doesn't have that hydrant pressure coming in. So you're operating off the tank. So you better hear that engine, you know, throttling up, and you'll know when you open up that nozzle the quality of your stream. So you're bled off, person on the nozzle, Right away, start putting that nozzle up into that black smoke overhead. Wash that hallway down because you don't want to crawl in and have all that fresh air coming in behind you, mixing with that orange glow at the end, and next thing you know, that hallway ceiling takes off overhead because that's how a fire can get behind you. So it's a very simple thing. Start hitting that hallway. Wash it down pretty good. Take a few seconds, okay? Think about the gallons that you're going to be using in that, that time, okay? If you got a 15, 16th nozzle, and look, the numbers are not exact. Firefighting is not an exact thing, okay? Just like, you know, just like the science end of it, okay? We're going to use different things every fire we go to because firefighting is circumstantial. So let's just say 180 gallons a minute divided by 60 seconds is three gallons a second. So I open up the nozzle, whip it around about five seconds. Five times three is 15. I've just taken control of that hallway. Now I can move in a little bit at a time, make sure that we've got that hallway under control, and if we got to hit it again to get to that room at the end of the hallway there, well, then we do it, and we're not wasting water. And we get in there to the, to the room. There's the room, okay? It might be a kitchen or who knows what it is, but that allows us... Now, now we can blast the hell out of it. 
don't, as you said, don't don't even think about penciling it. But open that nozzle up, and you just work it and work it good. Keep that nozzle stream up at the ceiling so it acts like a big sprinkler, a big deflector, side to side, up and down, big circles, and so forth. Cover as much of that room, and you're going to gain control in most cases. And I want you to think about confused? the time. The, What's that? I just wanted to, for the for the benefit of our listeners, when we mentioned the penciling, I know you talked about that in class. That you, I didn't realize where where people were learning that, and you said that's attributed to the flashover simulator. So I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners what you mean by penciling or what we mean by that, and how you think that's come into uh, some people's practices today because of the flashover simulators. Oh yeah, yeah, we we saw it here. You know, because everybody was going to the uh, the flashover classes, you know, you put on your aluminized helmet protectors, you know, and things like that, you know, and you got a guy sitting in the back who's going to close the door, and you're watching this fire develop. Look, it's it's radiant heat that's being created by the fire load. Take a look at what they're they're using for the fire, you know, and you're looking at this fire, you're watching it. So remember, radiant heat, light energy, the whole thing, you know, the whole package there, and it's coming over your head. And they're controlling the vent, right? They can pull it across mm-hmm. the ceiling and up and out through the vent, and it's a controlled environment, perfectly controlled. You don't have a combustible interior of a house or an apartment building or an office building inside that trailer. It's all metal. It gets hot. It gets hot as hell. But the thing is, a little bit of water penciled up at the ceiling, oh, man, look at how it controlled that. So people leave that, and if they're not told... Look, guys, this is just an, ex- uh, 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 an illustration how fire can move and so forth. But in a real fire, it's like you got to kill this thing. You kill that fire. you got that line. you got that nozzle in your hands. You open it up and you work it until you feel that atmosphere change and you've got control of it. Okay? Right. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, those, those are the basics. Those are the principles of fire attack right there. Right, so. right. It's interesting how you say yeah. that people got misled with that. You can see how easily that happens, too, you know, and how that, that, that oh. uh, goes into their way of thinking and their practice in fire attack because it worked in the in the flashover simulator. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, and that's one of those things, you know, you, in your basic training classes, so you have, you have an instructor who's, you got to get this stuff done. You got to learn this knowledge from the book. You got to learn and you got to pass your test. Then you got to pass the state test. Aware of that. But when you read some of these things that are being published for new firefighters to learn, we need instructors and, and, and we need instructors to be able to say, look, guys, here's what you have to know for the test. Okay? In reality if you have a fire situation you may not see the fire but it's black it's hot you're down to the floor and you can't move you better be throwing water because that's a very bad situation that's a ready to go bang and you know again this is this is a class for volunteers i don't care if you're volunteer career or whatever this is about your safety that we're talking about right here and your efficiency to do the job, understand, you know, to get in there and, and so forth. I, I hope I'm making sense here with this, you know? 
from the time oh, we yeah. open that you door, can't. we flush the ceiling. We work our way in about five feet. If you got to hit the ceiling again to get down to that orange glow down there, that's what you do. And so we pro- and let's just say we did that twice. So what did we use? 30 gallons of water to control that hallway so we could get down there. And if you got a 500-gallon water tank, well, we're doing pretty good then. They should be able to uh, get that supply line hooked up or another engine and- should be able to be there to augment that supply. There's that teamwork again, right? Everyone doing their oh. job, working as a team, but that takes training and working together. You can't just, right. Right. I say it, you, you can't walk into your firehouse and pretend to be ready. You've got no. to be ready. And it takes regular training. People, you're a professional firefighter. Understand your job and your family come first. But if we're stepping forward to volunteer for this fire service, a service that can kill you, we have mm-hmm. to operate efficiently, and the way to operate right. efficiently is to train and get on the training ground as often as possible. And if you're an officer or a training officer, you've got to nail down these basics before we worry about some of the other things that seem to occupy our time. And you've you've you're, dispelled. Go ahead, Seth. You're bringing up something to me that I want to hit on, and that's go for it. So. Your, your early question about how do you go in and change a fire department to prepare it and so forth. So we need some kind of written communications. Everybody should have a notebook. Everybody should have a notebook with how the department expects to operate. You know, it's like a mission statement and things like that. But when it comes to uh, SOPs, all right, look, I remember people, <laughs> you know how it is, Tom. You know, something comes out, and somebody out of somewhere says, oh, I don't like the way that's worded. I think it should be SOGs. Look, I don't care. Let's split the atom later on, okay? But anyways, keep your SOPs, or whatever you want to call them, not generic, but keep them general. So, for example, on response to a structure fire, uh, officer shall ride, officer seat shall be responsible for, and have a paragraph, a simple paragraph that describes, you know, what the expectations are of the officer. Firefighter, who's going to be the pump operator, driver, engineer, and then that. Okay, give them a, a descriptive paragraph. And thing, same thing with the third firefighter, and if you're you want to have three people on that engine? That's your nozzle firefighter right there. So whoever fills in there, they can read that. Ah, oh, this is what I got to do. I'm going to take the nozzle on 50 feet, and I'm going to go to the drop point. Okay, I'm going to get there. I'm going to have my radio on, and I'm going to make the call for water. When you make the call for water, and hopefully everybody else has got their walkie-talkies or their radios on, they hear that nozzle firefighter at the drop point saying. Charge the line, charge the line, engine one. And engine one's pump operator says, engine one, water coming. That gets everybody who's responding and listening in on that channel, whether it's a tactical channel or what, they know these guys are in position, water, and now the other part of the SOP, that second engine, guaranteeing water. If there's a need for a second line, there's a crew to stretch it. Things like that should be falling Mm -hmm. into place. And should be set up. 
This should be set up now, today. It should be in place. Yeah, right, right. Right? Yep. You're right. And, SOP, and this is the whole SOG, whatever you call it. Some call it best practice. I call it a playbook. Yeah. You've got to have a playbook. Your favorite sports you team do. has a playbook, and you get pissed off yeah. if the yeah. players bungle the play. Well, your residents are going to get pissed off, and people can die. It's a little more serious right. than a football or right. baseball game, right? Uh, you know, it's like what we said. Follow the plans or follow the play and don't freelance. Stick with the plan and we'll be better off. And Just, professional again, firefighters are stuff. students of the playbook. Uh, yes, sir. What do you think? You know, again, I, I appreciate all the compliments about, you know, the guys you ran across at FDIC and so forth. And I like to believe that practically all the people out there are along that same belief, you know? Oh, 100%. That's what we're out there for. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are a lot of yeah. like-minded firefighters out there that, that share this yeah. passion. And that's another reason to get out and network and go to the conferences, right? Yep. Now I'd like to throw something else out at you, you know, for this. Okay, so we're going in there. We're going to a, a, a meet with our upper-level people. We're going to say, look, what we need to do is get into this mentality. We need to get into this uh, culture and so forth. We need to set up plans to operate by. Please don't think that it happens next week. It's something that you build over time. It's like the fire service. It's been here for a long time. It's taken us a long time to get to where we're at. So if you're going to make any changes, and I, I've run across so many guys who say, oh, man, you see this, you know, we worked on this. It just isn't falling into place and so forth. Hold on, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't jump off the bridge. You know, we're not going to do that. So, But we are going to work to make this, and we are going to be an excellent fire operation. And so. it, sometimes you start with small bites, small bites. And yes. the other thing I like to say to that, Jeff, is there's going to be obstacles. There's always going to be naysayers. But you never achieve success without conquering obstacles and putting up with a little bit of pushback. Just expect that. But get yeah. your team together, formulate your playbook, stick with it. Don't change it constantly. Right. Stick with it. You know, adopt your practices however you're going to do it. Stick with it. Be prepared for the pushback, and eventually change can come. But don't try to change Rome overnight. Isn't that the old saying? <laughs> and, and bite that's off small sure. chunks. Um, that's, that's right. I wanted yeah. to. I wanted to. I. I wanted to say this earlier, but time is flying by, and I just want to remind listeners that they are listening to Fire Engineering Talk Radio and uh, this installment of the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, and I'm so glad to have joining me on this episode retired uh, Cleveland firefighter Jeff Shoup and talking about engine operations, and we've really been concentrating on changing the culture in our volunteer fire department if it needs to be changed and how we can get set up for a better engine company, uh, better engine company operations. And as I like to say, again, out of the nearly 30,000 fire departments in America, most have trucks, or at least one truck, whose sole purpose is to put water on the fire. So that's what we're talking about tonight. And and Jeff, I want to go back a little bit. Um, I circled this earlier, um, because you dispelled a I think we're doing a good job in the fire service now of getting our, especially our newer generation to understand this. But us older guys, Back in the day, it was forbidden, but it's not anymore. If you see dark black smoke at the ceiling level, that's burning fuel, or that's fuel about ready to let go. So don't be afraid to hit it with the water. Cool that baby, right? Right. 
That's absolutely correct. Back in the 70s, I remember you know, I was a young firefighter, and I heard the older guys talking. Remember, they were smoke eaters, you know. You only wore a, wore a mask if it was a really bad situation, if your company officers, hey, go get a mask on or something like that, okay. And we were changing. Fire service had to change because we knew that the smoke was different. It was more toxic, more dense, more heated because of the nature of its uh, makeup, you know? So you take a look at the synthetic, the hydrocarbons that have been used. Look at the wood out there today. You know, when you talk about OSB, why it, it's glue and wood chips. And when it burns, you get a higher temperature, a tremendous amount of smoke from a 4 by 8 sheet of OSB. And you line a room with that, you've got higher temperatures, greater smoke production, greater toxicity. It's like, yeah, you better, you know, have your ducks in a row here and get prepared to throw a lot of water quickly on a situation like that. Mm-hmm. And so we have realized for a long time that, yeah, the fire environment was changing and it's still changing. And every time something new comes about, this isn't the 70s anymore, you know, and even the 80s, okay, you know, but no, we got all these things. Take a look at this new problem with the lithium batteries. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, you know. Did you see all the – there was a lot of stuff at FDIC on that, a lot of classes, a lot of good information. I know my department officers brought back a ton of information to put together to add to our playbook, to be proactive. That's right. Pay attention to what's going on. See, now that's going to create a need for heavier water or bigger water because your inch and three quarters just aren't going to be able to do it. You know, not not going to be able to knock down the heat or or protect. You know, for example, I've heard I've heard some crazy numbers of heat coming from these lithium battery fires. So you know, you take a wood frame building. My God, it, you know, it's going to be incinerated wherever it's you know got that thing located in it. But what about the rest of the building? You know, that's mm. the other thing we got to concern ourselves with. So scary, scary. I worry about an yeah. airplane. I really do. I worry about a cargo holding an airplane someday. I, it scares the hell out of me with all the flying I do that if one of them ever took yeah. off in an airplane cargo hold, oh, God. Oh, my God, but, that's uh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. just got to. Yeah, yeah. But, again, we just got to stay at, stay on top of things and, um, you know, pay attention to what's going on in your community, pay attention to what's going on in the fire service and, um, so you know, since we're talking, again, so much about basics and that tonight, anything else when it comes to the stretch, you talked about, you know, pick a hose load and stick with it. Keep it simple. Right. Set your right. standardize as much I'm, as possible. Where are people else? Yeah, get, where yeah. else are people getting in trouble? I think it's a, uh, your turnout gear, and also uh, you you've got a lot of people out there. Like we said earlier, somebody from another part of the country comes into your area and throws up a presentation and, and sounds very good, but it runs counter to your fire department's way of doing business, okay? Uh, I don't know if that's uh, a problem or whatever. Uh, oh, God, I don't know. It's uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about. 
the firefighter firefighting has always been there to save lives and property. And there's a certain amount of risk that you have to accept. I, I, I was a student at the University of Cincinnati in a four-year program, and I remember sitting there with Dr. Kramer. I don't know if uh, anybody out there knows Dr. Kramer, but the guy was tremendous. And we were uh, in this contemporary issues class. And this is back, oh, God, I think about 89, 90, 91 or something like that. <sighs> Old friend of mine, I was just with him over at FDIC, retired New York City Captain Bobby Morris. <laughs> we were just talking about it last week, you know. Remember back days, uh, back at University <laughs> of Cincinnati, you know, Dr. Kramer, you know. And one of the things we had to take was, you know, like uh, a, a quarter on fire service law. And it was like you know that there's a certain amount of risk involved with becoming a firefighter. And so you, you have to accept that. Otherwise, you, know, you shouldn't be in this job. Now, the other thing that's happened along the way since those times is that our protective gear is giving us the best protection right now than at any other time in the history of firefighting. You take a look at the protective gear that we have, the materials that they're made out of, the SCBAs, the technology involved in those. Yeah. Now couple that with our fire attack, inch and three quarter, fifteen sixteenth. And if you if you want to use a fog nozzle, use a low pressure fog nozzle. I'm just throwing this out there. But think, consider a low pressure fifty psi fog nozzle that's going to put out 175 gallons a minute. I'm a firm believer. We went to, from inch and a half back in those 70s to inch and three quarter to get more water to handle the changing fire load. And as time has gone on, like I say, we've gotten better turnout gear, better SCBA. We have the best personal fire protection out there. Let's take advantage of that. And I'm not telling anybody to get crazy, but you know, be smart about it. And that's where the teamwork, the company concept, understanding fire, fire attack, and like we talked about with that hallway. Wash that hallway down because everything has limitations. While our turnout gear meets the standards, it has limitations. Mm-hmm. So use the tools you have. Understand. You know, again, let's go back to that hallway. There's the fire at the end of the hallway. It's, it's 15 feet away. It's ready to take off. Well, then you better wash that hallway ceiling down, okay? Your turnout gear, you don't want to wait to throw water because if you're down to the point where your turnout gear is there to save your life, that means your fire attack has failed. that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And, again, it's all. You, you hammer this home. You build that culture through continuous repetitive, and consistent training. Right, right. I was talking with somebody out there at FDIC, and we were talking about fire attack. And I I asked this person, have you uh, seen the old video from 1951 called Nozzle Man Part 1? 
And the guy says, what? I says, Nozzle Man Part 1. Akron Brass, Iowa State University, Royer and Nelson are two names that I remember. I read some of their works. They worked together with Akron Brass, did live burn training. And in, if you go on and find Nozzle Man Part 1, they understood coordinated fire attack. I'm an engine guy, and I have loved doing engine work. But you need that truck to vent in many cases. And they showed that back in 1951. This is nothing new. And this is the thing about UL and NIST. I, will, I think people need to realize that this stuff, this knowledge has always been there for us. We just had to look for it. So what they did, and again, masks, oh, my gosh. No. Firefighters were tough smoke eaters. They went into this place, and it's going good. You can see it right there in the video. And they talk about the motion of the firefighter on the nozzle, moving it in a circular motion to push that environment ahead. And you know what the truck was expected to do? Vent ahead of the fire. It was coordinated back then. Yeah. So, yeah. I saw Good someone stuff. had so written. So the guy looked it up. What's that? I saw someone had written something on coordinated fire attack back even a few hundred years ago. Someone had an excerpt at one of the classes I was with. I know I have it somewhere. And it talked about coordinated fire attack with ventilation. And it was written at some point in the 1800s. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't breathe, what do I got to do to breathe here? Break the window out. Cut the roof. Yeah, right. Get this right. environment off of off of us. <laughs> yeah. Do I yeah, do I do, yeah. I do I dare bring up for discussion your input, your thought? Um yeah, there's a lot of fire departments out there if they want to change their culture, they may be dealing with equipment that's pretty old and they may be still having those old fog nozzles, those old 100 psi TFT nozzles, whatever. Not here to criticize or anything, but what are your thoughts? If we're going to change the culture and the chief's been given a budget and says, Chief, what do you need? Or the chief's going to his board or whoever to say, we got to upgrade. It's time. What What's Jeff Shoup's recommendations? Um, you know, you could get into the 15th, 16th debate, the 7th, debate, the low-pressure fog debate. Uh, tell me what you think. What are the pros and cons and which direction would you like to steer people? Well, I came into the fire service, and it was fog nozzles all the way. The only time you saw a two-and-a-half uh, solid – I'm sorry. The only time you saw a solid bore nozzle was on a two-and-a-half when it was pulled for a, a big fire or on the deck gun. So uh, as time has gone on, and like I said, it goes right back to the changing materials and things like that, the amount of heat being produced and all the other stuff, well, we need to throw more water. Back then, your fog nozzles were all 100 PSI nozzles. They were solid brass also, and they were heavy as could be. Now, if you had a fog nozzle on a two-and-a-half, oh, my God. You know, it was like wrestling with a boa constrictor, you know? And that's mm-hmm. where you had to – you hoped that the pump operator was not over-pumping it. You wanted to make sure – that your people were backing you up before you opened that nozzle up because that thing had the chance to, or had the ability, I should say, to throw you across the street. 
and that's why you know guys would either sit on a line or put a key in the hose loop in it, and that was it. And if you wanted to be mobile with it, oh, there was no flowing it while 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 uh, you know and moving, absolutely not. You know, uh, solid bore is operated at fifty and should always operate at fifty. So that's what their design was back when John Freeman was doing that work back in the 1800s. So as time has gone on, we've seen the need for more water, and it's like anything else in life. Changes are on the horizon. Change for the sake of change is not good. Change for the sake of doing better, or in our case, becoming more efficient and safer in what we do, operating at a 50 PSI less pressure, (laughs) I don't see uh, any problem for changes there. If you want fog nozzles, you have the ability to get 50 PSI fog nozzles also. All right. So the debate, 7 eighths versus 15 sixteenths. Uh, anybody who's around me knows my stance is 15 sixteenths. You take as much water into battle with you as you can. Okay? I've got a video of a training fire I ran over 20 years ago. And it was the first fire after lunch. We had three good, what we consider all-hands fires in the morning, shut everything down, and had our lunch, came back, and this was the first fire after lunch. And as we're working this fire after lunch, uh Things weren't going the way they were in the morning, okay? And I had three rooms completely involved, a fourth room starting to take off, and no water being thrown on the fire. A second line had been deployed. When you see two lines going in, neither line is moving. There's no change in the fire conditions. In fact, they were getting more more intense and the smoke has no steam coming out of it, you got a problem. That's a red flag. So we got in. Oh, my God. There was, there was a, several red flags. It was a great learning experience for me and the guys. And so after the fire, we got, you know, I, I crawled in, found, found the nozzle, and let the nozzle rip, you know. Full open, just let it go. Let it go. Flow and so forth. We got the fire under control, you know. And afterwards, we're having our discussion, and it was just a little bit more than a discussion. I just couldn't, you know, understand how it went so well in the morning, and then this one just went off the tracks. The pump operator came up to me after after our discussion and says, I shouldn't tell you this, but uh, I didn't have the engine and pump gear. Hmm. 200 foot of inch and three quarter, 15 sixteenths, was able to handle that fire. And when anybody talks to me about lesser water or smaller tip sizes, I cringe. And again, you take as much water into a fire with you as you can, just for a simple mistake like that. So typically unintentional. Now, let's go back to what we talked about earlier tonight, 3 o'clock in the morning. You come into the firehouse, and now you're driving that engine, and I just don't know where where the pump uh, road switch is. Oh, my God. And 
you got water coming through from the hydrant, but you don't have it in pump, even though you think you might. And that nozzle was allowed, allowing us to knock that fire down and control that the fire situation. I got the video. Wow. Yeah. That's a spectacular story. It's the truth. I got it on video. <laughs> My yeah. gosh. Wow. Yeah. And that's why I say, yeah. and of course, you know, making the changes in any department aren't that easy. You know, when I was, when I was uh, doing the work, you know, back home when I was still on the job, you know, of course you got all those guys, you know, and all their experiences and so forth. And why are we changing? Why do we need to do this and so forth? And, you know, guess what? It rooted. So they moved in that direction. Yeah. Low pressure, high yeah. volume. Because it, it works. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to uh, see that video sometime, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see that. We, uh, we've we been talking for about an hour and a half now, and um, there's so much more we could talk about when it comes to engine operations. But I think, again, the focus tonight was for people looking to change the culture in their department. We covered a couple of the big topics there about keeping things simple, standardizing as much as you can standardize, play to your right. playbook. If you ha- if you don't have a playbook, put one together, but play to yeah. your playbook. Rehearse it, just like your pro sports teams, right? They're practicing. Yeah. We need to practice. It needs to become some second nature. It needs to get to the point where officers don't have to be dictating every single directive and order. People should just know what they are expected to do and then practice stretching that line. You gave a very good example of the stretch for the typical bread and butter fire. I'm just wondering if there's anything else you'd like to cover before we call it a night when it comes to changing the culture or perfecting that initial stretch and nailing down the basics. Uh yeah, I, I I think one of the things that uh, any any officer, any chief officer or uh, his staff members, and inc- I'm going to include all officers. Okay, let's let's include all officers. Need to meet. They need to discuss, and the chief has got to have an agenda. Okay, that's going to benefit the department. You know, here's what we want to do. We want to do this. We want to move in this direction. We want to do this, and this is going to take time and so forth. You know, because you're going to get your naysayers. You know, that, that's the way life is, you know. And you need to get people to buy in. And I've seen that in a couple of places where when you include people in on the process, don't make it yours. Make it theirs. It seems to go, again, whoever you're dealing with, you know, it can be different, you know. Uh, in, in some places, but, you know, when you give people a chance to have that, like Lassie would say, ownership. Uh, when, I, when I was on a job uh, in, 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 in the city, I was involved with the Clothing Safety Committee. I was chairman for a number of years, and, you know, I had made the push to get the whole department outfitted back in 98, I think it was. And I'd also said, we always had yellow gear. Well, as busy as we were, you took a look at the guys. You know, this guy's got pants that look like they're soiled with oil and dirt and so forth. They're, they're dark green. They're horrible looking. They're stiff from all the, you know, 
dirt in them. Again, you can always tell when a guy got a new coat. Bright yellow coat, dirty pants, or vice versa, and things like that, you know, and, and so forth. It was one of those things that that uh, it just wore out, you know, and guys liked that salty look. So that was 98. I made the proposal. We had a chief who said, oh, I'm going to take it to City Hall and so forth. He gets back to me and he says, oh, City Hall says it's not a capital good and we can't make the investment. And, it's, and we were looking to – I was I said, just get it for the whole department. We're going to outfit 1,000 guys right now, okay? Everyone deserves the same level of protection no matter where they're working, okay? Well, it didn't happen. Seven years later go by, seven years later. And we got a different chief. And I get a call from the chief of operations. He says, you still got that stuff that you proposed back then? I said, are you kidding me? I said, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could find it out in the barn. <laughs> so I did. He says, be in my office Monday. And a year later, the whole fire department, we got all brand-new turnout gear, all black, because mm. the guys had wanted black. And new turnout gear, and I says, yes, part of this deal, we got extractors in all the firehouses. You know what it did? That was one of those things. Guys asked, why don't we go to black? Why don't we go to black? Years ago, here it comes. And then when the extractors came, it's like, holy cow, guys are take, taking it and washing their turnout gear and stuff like that. And it was like, wow, this is a win for the departments, you know, for that little thing right there, for the safety and the health of the firefighters. And, of course, right. you know, I, I had talked about a lease purchase program. So when you go into something like changing something like that, you know, uh, changing the turnout gear, we're going to go to black, we're going to get this, we're going to get that, and we're planning on every five years, six years, or whatever it is, turning over our turnout gear. We're going to plan on getting grants, and we're going to look for setting aside monies for firefighter safety. And you just might win the guys over big time with something like that. Just to, That's just one thing right there. Yeah, and explain the why. There's always the explain right. the why. When you go to make change, people are going to question it, especially probably long-tenured veterans. Um, oh, yeah. and maybe administrators, if it's going to cost some money. Asking questions shouldn't be looked at as being condescending to you. You should be prepared right. to explain the why. And let's use an example mm -hmm. of in the volunteer firehouse, here's another dysfunctional moment. I was chief 25 years ago. I instituted hose packing method A that we still use today. Someone comes up with a new method fine but rather than just say we're changing it for the sake of changing it be prepared to explain to your veteran members here's an idea we have we would like to explore doing it a different way here is why and explain mm -hmm. it to those rather than just do it because you're offending them people put a lot of hard work and effort into getting whatever it is that you might be replacing and you need to understand the human relation aspect there, especially on the volunteer side where you're, you know, you want to keep that morale in the firehouse good. Oh, yeah. And you can really, sure. you can really make people upset if you don't explain the why and do things respectfully. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. 
I want to throw this out there before we eventually end this night. I'm fine talking to you. <laughs> this is great, you know. <laughs> it is good the stuff. Senior fire, the senior fire, your senior firefighters, the people like yourself, you're a senior firefighter, you're an officer, but what about the firefighters, the firefighters in rank of being a firefighter who got 20, 25 or more years on the department? And like when new people come on, do you tell those people, look, you're going to be expected to be this way, that way, the other thing, and so forth. And when you have a question, take it to one of the senior firefighters. See if they can help you out. And if it, and if it goes beyond that, then we'll take care. They'll take it on accordingly. But you yeah. show value in the senior firefighters. And you know when a young firefighter goes up, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll help you. You know, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm so, a I things. know I'm simplifying it there. Yeah, no, but sometimes it is. And let me just correct you. I'm I'm not. I'm a fire commissioner, but I'm not really a frontline officer anymore. A commissioner is a little different than that. So I am just a black hat firefighter and uh, celebrating my 40th year a couple of months ago. So I guess that means senior in terms of age anyway. <laughs> Yeah, but right, uh, right. no, you're so right. And again, here's another thing in the volunteer firehouse, and I've talked about it before on the show, is you know, talk to your new members about who the senior members are, because a lot of them are past chiefs or maybe people that used to be an officer for a number of years. And even if not, mm-hmm. they've been a firefighter, that's still an accomplishment. So single them out and show that they're part of the team. And that's a subject right. for another day. But again, it's building morale in making a firehouse a true firehouse where people work together, yeah. respect each other, get along, and work for the common goal of delivering great yeah. service to their residents. No doubt about it. All part of the team. Yeah. All part of yeah. being a member of the team. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I yeah. know we we did cover a lot tonight. There's so much more we could get into. Um, I know we could keep talking. I, I usually limit to an hour and a half or so because people listen when they're running and jogging or working right, out do. and doing work. So it's just so we'll definitely do a part two where we can maybe get into some advanced stuff. But again, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jeff, if you want to just finish up with a few final thoughts on engine work and changing your culture, um, keeping things simple, um, any last bits of information you'd like to pass on to to the listeners wow i don't know if i can give any bits out there you know but uh you know again the things that we 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 touched on were probably that are probably the the most important is that keep your firefighting simple because the fire is going to make it complex enough for you that that is that's a truism you're not going to get by that okay uh operate as a team member uh follow the senior man and listen to your company-level officer, work together for that. Departments need to have that playbook like you're talking about and work on it to, so that everybody knows it and understands it. Keep it simple enough that everybody can understand it and so forth because you're going to be working with different members of your department from call to call. It's just the way it is. And uh, what else? I could probably come up with some other stuff, you know. But uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Be 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 good and, gre- and aggressive with that nozzle. Absolutely, that's what I wanted to say about that. You know, 
get that nozzle as close to the fire as you can. Don't let the building fall on you. Don't let the, yourself get in trouble. And that's what that company officer should do. Make sure. But get that nozzle up to that fire and play away and play away strong. Full open bail when you're attacking a fire. No penciling. You know, just simple things like that, simple points. So, and get water on the God, fire to- quickly. Right. Yeah, you're, you're, and I watch you're some right. of these videos sometimes, and you see people, like, not even walking with a sense of urgency. They're just lollygagging around. And, again, they're not even using tank water. And you're watching the fire grow exponentially as it's happening. Walk with a sense of urgency. <laughs> you know, have it. <laughs> the quicker you get water on the fire, the quicker your problems go away. I think that's what Andy Frederick yeah, said, sure. something like yeah, that. he did. Take away the fire and you take away the problem. Yeah. Yeah. How, how simple. So let's get good at again. it. Right? Yep. Yep. Get good at it and change the yeah. culture in your department. It's it's doable. It's very doable. So if um if any attitude. of the listeners wanted to reach out to you to talk more about this, to maybe bring you in, because I know you do some fantastic hands-on training as a firefighter that benefited from that training at FDIC several years ago in the hot training. Um, And I will be with you at the FASNI conference up in Old Forge in September for any of our New York (laughs) listeners or maybe Pennsylvania or nearby. uh, Check out the uh, FASNI-sponsored Old Forge Fire School in Old Forge, New York. I believe it's around the weekend of September 15th, but uh, Jeff will yes. be doing some good training up there with uh, with some of his group. And uh, But if people wanted well, to reach out and talk more to you, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, you can hold of me, uh, I don't know, what, what's the best way? What Which, which way do the... Uh, well, people usually people get their email there. address or something like that. So you want to just let people know your email, and they can send Look you an up. email if they want to get a hold of you? Yeah, go go for my email, hjs0552 at gmail.com. Or strategicfiretraining.com, and you'll see how to contact us there. Strategicfiretraining.com. Right. Or email hgis0552 at gmail. No, no. Hjs. Hjs0552. 0552 at gmail.com. Yeah. Gotcha. Hjs0552 at gmail.com. Or look them up on Strategic Fire Training. Yes. You can contact us there too. But yeah, we'd love to come out and work with your guys' departments, you know. And we will give you a great time and you'll have a great time doing it and you'll get to do so much that is simple, basic and principles. So And you'll go a long way toward establishing that culture in yep. your department of aggressive yeah. engine firefighters. Fantastic. Good yes, stuff, Jeff. Yes, and we'll, I think we got more we can talk about and um definitely oh, gonna yeah. keep uh keep a list here and, and go on to a part two. But um for tonight 
I want to thank you so very much for taking the time and spending an hour and 45 minutes with me and my listeners and uh, uh, so great. much great this information. Great we yeah. could talk all day. Remember, in, uh, remember, yeah, go on. I was go sitting on. with you once. I remember just talking engine stuff at one of the conferences one year before I even knew you that well. Um, I think it was at State Chiefs or one of those, and you were there in, in the lunch area, and I, I introduced myself, and you pulled a chair out and said, sit down, and we talked for like an hour about all, all <laughs> stuff engine-related. That was many years ago. I, don't, I doubt you remember, but yeah. I do. <laughs> so, I real had, good. So. Uh, yeah, yeah. At a conference a couple of years ago, we were in eastern Pennsylvania, and a guy comes up to me, and Jeff, oh my gosh, you know, and it, here it turns out he was a student that we also had back there. So every once in a while, you know, somebody comes up to you from the past, you know, and they had a great time, and you know, and that's what it's all about, you know, right. when you can really right. help somebody out and they appreciate it and so forth. So yeah, all right. and I know you're all about helping out the brothers and sisters and making them the best firefighter they can be. So thank you so very much for that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Excellent. Thanks for the compliment. So, really good I stuff. Got a great really good guys. Stuff. Trust me, if you have us there, I got a great group of guys. Like I said, I got Nap, Hillsworth, John Matier, Jeff Diedrich, Groover, Chad Groover, and Blake Deber. We're going to be up at Deber's place in a couple weeks here. He runs, awesome. like I said, that school at Western Tech. We're going to be doing a whole weekend up there. He does a lot of stuff with. Uh, the fire departments up there, both career and volunteer fire departments, and we always have a great turnout up there. So mm, great. that's coming up. And then we're going to the South Dakota State Fire School. That's, that'll be in June. So that's another one. And we see a lot of people out there. Great. Good. Keep on mm-hmm. learning. Never stop learning. Hashtag never stop learning, mm-hmm. like I was saying last week at FDIC. It never ends. Yep. Part of the professional equation, for sure. So, okay. All right. Well, thanks again right, uh, for anyone that wants to reach out to me. My contact info: get a hold of me at tamerrill63 at aol.com. You can check out my professional volunteer fire department Facebook page and get a hold of me through that. Please check it out. Give it a like. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter and. My website, theprofessionalvolunteerfiredepartment.com, is all the um, all of my podcasts on there. Also, my YouTube channel has all the podcasts and links to my articles and information on how to get a hold of me. So my next show will be Tuesday, June 6th, so stay tuned for that. Again, stay tu- uh, thanks for tuning in tonight. And remember, folks, true professionalism is not defined by a paycheck. And your residents are owed professional service delivered by professional firefighters representing a professional organization. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care. Thank you.